Good morning. Again, are we good to go, Robbie? Yeah, sounds good. Terrific. Okay. I'm uh, very privileged to be able to speak to you this morning. And uh, got a lot of ground to cover, so buckle up. Um, if you would like to come closer, you can. feels a little like everybody's very far away. I won't object even in the middle if you get up and move. That's fine. Um, we're going to be looking <coughs> at Leviticus chapter 10 this morning. The first, just the first few verses. And um, we're going to see just how jam-packed it is full of significance for our faith. Let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you and praise you for, for your presence here with us right now. We thank you for your spirit that fills us, that opens our eyes to understand your word. And we just pray that you would help us to do just that this morning. We thank you for um, all that you teach us, that we might come to you, that you might dwell with us, just the wonders of your salvation. And I pray that we would glory in that this morning and that we, we would give you all the praise and glory and that this would be a time of, of worship uh, to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Leviticus chapter 10, and starting in verse 1, if you want to turn there. So yeah, get out your, get out your sword, and we're going to sharpen it a little this morning, I hope. Uh, just a little context for what we're about to read. It's one year after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been to Mount Sinai. They've received the Ten Commandments and they've received instructions to build the, the tabernacle or the, also called the Tent of Meeting where the glory of God would live among them. And the book of Exodus, which is the book before Leviticus, ends with the completion of that tent. And then the cloud, the manifestation of God's presence among the people, descends on that tent. And the glory of Yahweh fills it. And the book of Leviticus then opens up with instructions from God for how to perform offerings that God requires, how to perform those at the tent. And you can read through the first chapters of Leviticus. You see lots of rules and uh, instructions. Then you get to Leviticus 8. And then God, God calls there for the congregation to assemble at the tent and to watch as Moses ordains the priests. The priests are Aaron, Moses, uh, that's Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons. And they're also going to uh, consecrate the tent and everything that's in it. They're going to dedicate it to, to Yahweh, to the Lord. And in Leviticus 9, the priests offer the first sacrifices that are offered uh, on behalf of the people at the tent. Um, they also make atonement uh, not only for the, uh, the, the people, but the tent. Uh, Leviticus 9 ends with Moses and Aaron coming out from the tent. They come out from the presence of Yahweh, and they bless the nation that's gathered around the tent. And the glory of Yahweh appears to all the people. And the Lord, Yahweh himself, descends uh, sends out fire that consumes the offering. And people all see this. Everything was holy, glory, and awe. The people had received God's blessing and God was glorified in their midst. And now Aaron is officially the high priest. So he's priest number one, if you will. 
and his eldest sons, who are named Nadab and Abihu, they're number two and number three, if you will. And so following these glorious events, that very day, Nadab and Abihu, number two and number three, they come to the tent of meeting to make an offering of incense. And chapter 10 tells us what happened. So Leviticus chapter 10 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting, <coughs> putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. And Moses called to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to, the son, to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will, he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. So this... Uh, is a shocking event. It is very graphic. We have Nadab and Abihu coming to the tent to give an offering by fire, and instead they become the offering. If it were a movie, it would come with a warning, I think, graphic imagery. Two men are burned alive and their corpses are carried to the trash heap by their shocked and grieving relatives. Though graphic, this imagery is not the result of a random act of violence. God saw fit in his sovereign plan to allow these men to do what they did. He saw fit to engulf them in flames and he has seen fit for this imagery to be passed down so that we have it now 3,500 years later. This graphic imagery was preserved for a purpose, and that's to teach us the truth. And that truth, in a word, if you'll allow me, is Jesus. When you get down to it, all I want to really explain to you today is Jesus. I just want to show you Jesus in all this. So the question is, how do we start with this event and Nadab and Abihu and arrive at Jesus? Well, there are five truths that emerge from this story, and these truths are going to drive us unswervingly to Jesus and that's going to be our outline for this morning and those truths are how great is God's holiness how grave is our sin how great the gulf how great God's grace and how great God's gospel and if you have your outline in front of you there I don't think I gave David exclamation points on the end of those but you can add those if you want because these are really exclamations not just dry statements and they're not questions, although they start with the word how. They are exclamations, and we're going to see that this morning. So let's get started. How great is God's holiness? 
as we grapple with the horror of what happened here, the first question that came to my mind, and I suspect a question that comes to yours, is why? Why were Nadab and Abihu consumed by fire from the Lord? Why did Yahweh, king of over all the universe, react so strongly to seemingly such a small thing? Was it, was it a small thing? What's really going on here? Well, in verse 3, the Lord himself, speaking through Moses, gives us his answer. He says, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. In this answer, God identifies the core issue, the root basic issue, if you were, that's underlying everything that happened. And that truth is that God is holy. Why did fire from Yahweh consume Nadab and Abihu? It's because Nadab and Abihu did not treat God as holy, nor honor him in his holiness. And this is a problem, fundamentally, because Yahweh is holy. So this brings us to the first point of our outline, how great is God's holiness? That God is holy is the very reason the book of Leviticus is given. In Leviticus, Yahweh declares that he is holy at least eight times. And he also says, because he is holy, Israel shall be holy. For example, if you go one chapter over to chapter 11, verse 44, the Lord says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Now, what does God mean when he says he's holy? The base Hebrew word means apartness. To be holy is to be set apart. When the Bible speaks of a person or an object being holy, it means that he, she, or it is set apart unto God or dedicated in some special way to God. But when the Bible speaks of God's set-apartness, it speaks of a quality that's on a whole other level. God is the creator. Everything else is creation. He's dependent on no one and no thing. He is, by definition of who he is, set apart. And his set-apartness is not something that's granted to him by some external authority. God's holiness is inherent to who he is and what he does. Now there's a moral quality to this separation. God, in his nature, by definition, is completely and utterly set apart from or separated from sin or evil or any impure thing. God is pure. God is moral perfection. God is good. God's character is the very definition of good, and he himself is the source of everything good. The Bible tells us, James tells us that, and he, not, he only does good. He cannot sin. And this quality, his nature, results also in him being set apart to, devoted to, the purpose of seeking his own honor, his own glory. And that's all good because he is all good. What brings him honor is good because he is good, because he is holy. And with this, what dishonors him is evil because he is good, because he is holy. We see his holiness proclaimed not only in Leviticus, but of course throughout Scripture. The psalmist, as we saw this morning, declare it. Isaiah and John report that the angels in heaven declare it. You're familiar with the uh, angels worshiping God in heaven and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And that appears twice in Scripture. Isaiah tells us there's no one like Yahweh. There's no other creator, no other sustainer, no other sovereign. Paul tells us that he's before all things. In him all things hold together and all things will ultimately bring him glory. So God's holiness is proclaimed in words. But God did one better. He literally showed Israel His holiness in images. 
and he painted these images using historical events. And one of those is the burning of Nadab and Abihu. But before Nadab and Abihu became part of this Leviticus 10 image, they had the privilege to witness one of the grandest images, perhaps, of God's holiness. One that should have been burned forever. No pun intended. One that should have been burned forever into their memory. And the events are recorded in Exodus chapter 19. And I'm going to read from there, so if you want to turn there, just to, it's a, I think it's a blessing just to see this and, and worship God in His holiness. The cha- this chapter in Exodus sets the broader context within which Nadab and Abihu were operating. Here God shows Israel that He is wholly other. He's separate, set apart. So the setting is, it's the third month after God brought Israel out of Egypt. They've entered the wilderness of Sinai and they've camped in front of the mountain. The people stay in the foothills and Moses goes up the mountain to speak with the Lord. So Moses shuttles back and forth between Yahweh and the people. So we already see the people are low and God is high. And a mediator is required to go between them. And it's for the people's safety, we'll find out, to protect them, really, from God's holiness. Before fully manifesting himself atop the mountain to meet the people, God actually requires them to to perform three days of purification. And even then, after they've purified themselves, they've washed, they're not to go, uh, go up or even touch the mountain that God is going to descend on. The glory of God would be atop the mountain, but the people are going to be held at a distance by a barrier that they set up. And beginning in verse 16 of Exodus 19, we read, So it came about on the third day, after the purification, when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the entire mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to stare and many of them perish. Also have the priests who approach the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. The next chapter, Exodus 20, goes on to tell of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And then after that, a little further down, verse 18, chapter 20, it says, And all the people were watching and hearing the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when all the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. However, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you so that you will not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So now this is the image. The image of holiness that Yahweh gave the people of Israel. And he imprinted it on their national conscience. We, we, as we're going through the Psalms in the mornings, we're seeing this uh, repeatedly. The thundering, the trumpeting, the earthquaking, the awesome power, the threatening dark clouds, the lightning, the smoke, the fire. They also see that there's a law that separates them and it's for their own protection. There are man-made barriers that are set up to remind them of the danger. 
They see the need for a mediator and the requirement that the people of God fear God and that they honor Him and so be holy themselves. And they would be holy because He is holy. This is the holiness of Yahweh. This is the holiness, this, this, this first part, most fundamental part, this holiness is the first part and the most fundamental part of the answer to why Nadab and Abihu died. But that's not the whole story. You can look back at Leviticus 10 now and verse 3 and remember what God said. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people, I will be honored. So Nadab and Abihu didn't simply die because God is holy. They died because God is holy and they did not treat him as such. But how? How exactly did they not treat Yahweh as holy? Nadab and Abihu did something wrong. What did they do that was wrong? This brings us to the second point in our outline. How grave is our sin? Nadab and Abihu's sin was their failure to honor God. Seems simple enough. Leviticus uh, 10 verse 1 tells us that this is the case. We read there that Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, okay, you might say, I don't see the word sin anywhere in there. True, but what it does say clearly is that Nadab and Abihu did what Yahweh had not commanded them. They did what Yahweh had not commanded them. And I don't think I can overemphasize how important this phrase is, that they did which he had not commanded them. This phrase is intended to be very shocking, and I want to show you why. Having read this phrase, our reaction really should be like, wait a minute, what does it say here? It can't be right. Let me read that again. And then we read it again and rub our eyes and read it again, and we realize it's exactly what it says. It says what Yahweh had not commanded them. Why do I say it should be shocking? Why do I, it should be like a slap in the face. To understand why, we need to roll back the clock about eight days before Nadab and Abihu died. And that brings us to chapter 8 in Leviticus. So if you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Leviticus 8 tells about Aaron and Nadab and Abihu's ordination. They're being or, ordained as priests. And beginning in verse 1, <clears throat> we see how the, the ordination started. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. And when the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded us to do. And then the ordination begins. The priests are washed and dressed in their priestly garments. And if you skip down to verse 9, it says, He also placed the turban on, on Aaron's head and the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And again in verse 13, Next, Moses and Aaron's sons came near and clothed them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And four verses later, after the bull for the ordination sacrifice was slaughtered, in verse 17, it says, but the bull and its hide and its flesh he burned outside the camp. How did he do it? Just as the Lord commanded Moses. And I could go on. There's a steady drumbeat in chapters 8 and 9. The Lord had commanded. Just as the Lord had commanded. It happens, it's said 12 times that Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and Aaron's other sons did just as Yahweh commanded. 
So there's this cadence, this drumbeat, just as the Lord had commanded, just as the Lord had commanded, just as the Lord had commanded. And then this slap in the face, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire, which the Lord had not commanded. So let's put their not having done what Yahweh commanded in the context of the worship of a holy God. And we can begin to understand the gravity of their sin and of sin generally. A holy God has holy standards. These standards are not by fiat, as we already discussed. They're not arbitrary rules. His standards are good because He is good, because He is holy in and of Himself. And He laid out everything very clearly and in great detail. He had demonstrated His holiness to them as we saw at Mount Sinai. He told them that He would dwell in a tent of meeting with them in their midst. He told them how to build the tent, what to put in it, what offerings they were to offer, how to offer them, when they were to come before his presence, he told them how and when they were to come near him. And when Nadab and Abihu went off script, what they were saying is, yeah, we saw your glory and your holiness, and we heard all you said about the offering and the sacrifices, but we just figured that we'd improvise. They decided they'd approach God on their own terms, not on his. And when they did that, when they did what God had not commanded, when they sinned, they were not treating God as holy, nor honoring him before the people. No matter what they had no matter that they had followed all of God's commands up to that point, the moment they deviated, the moment they broke with God's will and asserted their own, they actually assaulted God's holiness. And God's strong reaction here, this graphic image of two men struck down by fire where they stood, should be understood then not only as a reflection of God's holiness, but also as a reflection of the gravity of sin. And the gravity of sin is this. Sin is an assault on God's holiness. It's an assault on his moral purity and his devotion to seeing that he is honored. It's an assault on his authority. It's an assault on his very character. And I'll pause for a moment just to be clear that we're not just saying bad things about Nadab and Abihu. I mean, we are saying bad things about Nadab and Abihu, but Nadab and Abihu were humans just like us. So if their attempted act of worship met with so devastating a response because it was not what God had commanded, ought we not also be concerned with our actions, even our intents and the motivations behind those actions, even our thoughts that stray and continuously so from what God has commanded? All of this is sin. And sin, all sin, is grave because it's an assault on the holiness of God. Now we come to the nub of the issue. Why so graphic an image? Why the burned corpses? As we've seen thus far, on the one hand, we have the holiness of God. How great is God's holiness? And on the other, we have the unholiness of man. How great our sin. What the graphic imagery of the fire and Nadab and Abihu's death shows us is the fundamental incompatibility of the two. In the presence of the holy the unholy is consumed. And this brings us to point three of the outline. How great the gulf. What I mean by how great the gulf is how far sin separates unholy man from a holy God. The separation is not a physical distance, although that's part of how God illustrated it at Mount Sinai. But it is, as I said, a fundamental incompatibility. The Apostle John tells us that God is light and maybe you can finish it for me. In him, there is no darkness at all. 
God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So you see, light fundamentally is incompatible with darkness. When you come into a dark room and turn on the light, what happens to the darkness? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it, right? Quote John again. The light annihilates the darkness. Throughout Scripture, God uses fire to image this incompatibility and this destruction, and also to image the ultimate incompatibility, if you will, the ultimate separation, and that is hell itself. Long before Nadab and Abihu, Adam and Eve sinned. They were expelled from the garden. And what stood between them and the garden where they had had face-to-face fellowship with God? It was an angel with what? A flaming sword. And you remember, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah as kind of an icon of this. How was their sin dealt with? Fire was rained down from, from the Lord out of heaven. And then again, not long after Nadab and Abihu, when the Israelites complained in the wilderness in Numbers 11, the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of them. And if you're familiar with the story of Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, we read about that this morning, actually too, in uh, uh, Psalm 105, what was it? <clears throat> um, if you're familiar with that story, Korah's rebellion, you'll remember that the people rebelled against Moses' leadership and then fire came forth from Yahweh and consumed 250 representatives of the opposition. Moving to the New Testament, Jesus, quoting Isaiah, tells us that hell is unquenchable fire. Peter tells us that at the end, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. And John tells us that the final judgment ends with all of the unholy being thrown into the lake of fire. So Nadab and Abihu's fate, like that of the other rebellious Israelites, and Sodom and Gomorrah are graphic illustrations of this fundamental incompatibility of God's holiness and man's sin. And it's an incompatibility that ultimately condemns unholy men to hell. Now there are two other parts of the story that illustrate the gulf between a holy God and an unholy man. We talked about the fundamental incompatibility. There's two other things I wanted to point out <clears throat> from the story. First, I want us to think about how special Nadab and Abihu were. See, the book that we're reading itself is named after their very own tribe. They were of the tribe of Levi. Leviticus is Latin for of the Levites. And all Levites, all descendants of Levi, including Nadab and Abihu, were chosen by God to serve, serve him as priests at the tent of meeting. But Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and other sons were specially chosen from among the Levites, not only to serve as priests, but also one day possibly be chosen to serve as the high priest. These select few were the only people that were allowed to come near Yahweh. So we have the Israelites. They're already God's chosen people. And from, from among them are the chosen tribe of the Levites. And from among them are the chosen family of Moses and Aaron. And even from among them are Aaron's family including Nadab and Abihu, were specially chosen as priests. So Nadab and Abihu were the chosen few, the chosen few, the chosen few. The, I lost count. They were the most special of the most special, the holiest of the holy. And as if that weren't enough, something I didn't remember, Nadab and Abihu had been among the few who actually saw God in the, in the Exodus story. In Exodus 24, Nadab and Abihu, they were actually invited by name to eat and drink in the presence of God. 
That's uh, verse 10 of Exodus 24. So Nadab and Abihu were privileged as only very few have been privileged on this side of eternity. But here's the point. <clears throat> on the day that they did not do what the Lord had commanded, none of any of that made them holy. None of any of that gave them the right to come to God on their own terms. And that brings us to the last piece of the story that illustrates how great the gulf is that separates unholy man from unholy God. It also brings us to another question maybe many of you have. I kind of soft-pedaled it. I said, what did they do wrong? Well, they did what God had not commanded. But you might still be wondering, what exactly did they do that was wrong? We understood that they did what Yahweh had not commanded, but what was it exactly that they did? I think once we start to understand that, we can start asking what woulda, shoulda, coulda been done for them to have done it right. There are a lot of details and inferences that we could get bogged down in here. Many a sermon has been preached starting with the phrase strange fire back in Leviticus 10, verse 1. It turns out that strange fire could refer to a number of issues. It may literally have been the wrong fire that they used their own coals instead of the coals that God himself lit with his fire, which we read about the fire coming down and consuming the offering. They were supposed to use those coals from that altar. Maybe they didn't. It may have been that they deviated from the holy incense recipe that God had given them. They were supposed to use a very special kind of incense. Because strange also can be translated alien, it could be that they were actually adding on to the previous offerings that had been made to Yahweh, the Lord. They were adding on to that with an offering to another strange God, an alien God, an idol. There's the possibility that it was just their motives that were improper. They were just celebrating them themselves and the fact of their ordination as priests and they weren't actually worshiping Yahweh at all. And the text also suggests, if you look at verse 9, there's a comment about not drinking alcohol. Maybe, maybe they were drunk. Perhaps it's some combination of all of the above. Uh, perhaps every single one of them were true. But I want to go to Leviticus 16. If you turn to Leviticus 16, in chapter, uh, verse 1, I want to focus on this for a minute. There we read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Nadab and Abihu, after they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So we read here, it says, Tell Aaron he shall not enter. And then in verse 2 it says, uh, 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 sorry, in verse 2 it says he shall not enter, and that's followed in verse 3 with Aaron shall enter. And the context here is this is after the death of Nadab and Abihu. So there's a clear implication that if Aaron enters, he will die just as Nadab and Abihu died. And this might be a clue that what Nadab and Abihu did wrong was to enter or attempt to enter the holy place and to do that not according to God's instructions. They were the wrong men in the wrong place, coming in the wrong way, at the wrong time. And this gets back to our how great is the gulf. They were the wrong men in the wrong place, coming in the wrong way at the wrong time. 
Everything was wrong. But there's another implication. God is telling us here that the right man may enter in the right way and not die. And this brings us to point number four, how great God's grace. So Nadab and Abihu were consumed because God is holy. They were consumed because they were sinful. They were consumed because God's holiness and man's sinfulness are incompatible. But thanks be to God, the story does not begin and end with the burning of Nadab and Abihu. So far, pretty much what we've done is established the problem, right? God is holy, man is not, and the, the gulf is great. Now it's time to talk about the solution. And the solution is God's grace. And that grace is unfolded in, in that chapter 16 of Leviticus, where God tells Aaron he may enter the place where God dwells. There's something Aaron needs to do, though. Aaron needs to make atonement. He needs to make atonement for the tabernacle and the altar and the priest and finally the nation of Israel. And provided he does that, he will not die. And this, it says in Leviticus 16, is to be done once a year on the Day of Atonement. This is Yom Kippur, which, by the way, is right around the corner. It uh, begins at sunset Tuesday, October 4th this year, and ends sunset the next day. That, in brief, is the message of Leviticus 16. Atonement must be made where the priest drawing near to God will die. So let's think about this word atonement for a minute. It means to cover over. What needs to be covered over is the impurity and the sin, all the unholiness, the unholiness of the priests and the people and even the holy place itself. If this unholiness is not removed, it renders the priest's life forfeit. This atonement, this covering over, it shouldn't be thought of as a sweeping under the rug. It's an actual cleansing and consecrating. It's a making holy. That's in verse 19 of chapter 16, if you want to look back at that. A holy God, the message is that a holy God cannot dwell among an unholy people in an unholy place, but God desired to call out to himself a people that he might bless them and that, he might, uh, that they might worship him and that he might dwell among them. And that's the whole point of this tent, a meeting. Right? Exodus 29 tells us that. And that's where God gives the instructions on how to build the tent. And there he says, I will meet there at the tent with the sons of Israel. And it, it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why did he bring them out of the land of Egypt? So that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh their God. So Leviticus 16 comes in the wake of Nehedeb and Abihu's death with instructions for how sin can be atoned so that God might dwell among Israel without them all winding up like Nadab and Abihu. And this is where we see God's great grace. God's grace, his unmerited favor in this whole story. Now, I read over it quickly, but in Exodus 29, I don't know if you caught it, but God said, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests to me. So this is important. After all of the instructions, all the details about offerings and how to sacrifice them, we see in the end that it is not the sacrifices in and of themselves, it is not the performance of the rites required, though they may be. It is not the obedience in and of itself 
commanded, though it may be, that make the people holy. Ultimately, it is God who consecrates. It's God who sets apart. It's God who makes His people holy. And this is how great is God's grace. That He would make people holy. In Exodus and Leviticus, thinking back over what we've discussed so far, we can see God's grace demonstrated in four ways. Number one, God demonstrated His grace by not remaining aloof. Despite the unholiness of the people, despite their repeated complaining and disobedience, despite Nadab and Abihu's sin, God was committed to His people. He was committed to His plans and His promises. He was committed to dwelling among them. He brought them out of Egypt, as we said, for that purpose. And He remained faithful through their unfaithfulness. He patiently taught them and disciplined them and taught them some more. And He was with them. He never left them. He never forsook them. Exodus tells us of the cloud dwelling over the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Um, A cloud by day and fire by night. And it was visible in all is the house of Israel. Everyone knew God was with them. And this is all of God's grace that He would take the initiative not only to make the plans and promises that included His people, but that He would seek and save and enter into the midst of the people to dwell with them. Second, God demonstrated His grace by providing the instructions themselves to the, that the people needed. He provided the law. The sins of the people needed to be addressed. The great gulf between God and the people needed to be crossed. The people needed to be purified from their unholiness in order to fellowship with a holy God or they would be destroyed. And God provided them the roadmap they needed to follow in order to address those sins. He gave them the law. The law consisted not only of the practices, the do's and the don'ts, but also the ceremonies to observe, to make atonement, to cover over when they didn't do the do's and they did the don'ts. And all of this is God's grace. He provided the law. I want to say He gave them the truth. Put that word on the shelf there. Truth. He gave them the truth so that they could walk in it and not wonder and doubt and wander off on their own only to be consumed in the fire of His holiness. Third, we see God's grace in that He provided the very means necessary for the people to follow His instructions. So He did more than just provide the instructions. He gave them what they needed to follow them. You may remember that he, he, he arranged it so the Egyptians would give them the gold and silver and the clothing so that they could build a tent and all its furnishings. We know he blessed them with flocks and herds so that they would have the abundance they needed to make sacrifices to him. And we know he miraculously provided bread and meat and water for them on their journey so that they had the strength of body and mind to obey him and observe all his commandments. So not only did he take the initiative, Not only did he provide them the truth, but he also provided the means. I'm going to call that the way. So he provided the truth. He provided the way by which they could follow that truth. Finally, fourth, God provided the adequacy or the sufficiency of the sacrifices. What do I mean by that? I think, uh, let me start by explaining, uh, explaining this by asking a question. Why are the sacrifices sufficient for the covering of the people's sins? Why are sacrifices sufficient for the covering of people's sins? And I think a simple way to answer this is an illustration. And if you've ever noticed, probably you have, that all U.S. dollar bills, regardless of denomination, have at least one thing in common. On them, printed in all caps, it says, this note is legal tender for all debts 
public and private. What does that mean? It means that the government of the United States has declared that each one of these scraps of paper is actually worth more than the paper that the words are printed on, right? The bills are a valid form of payment, and you can't refuse them. I mean, you could look at a $20 bill and say, that's not worth $20, it's just a piece of paper. But you have no legal basis to do so. That paper is worth $20 because the authority of the United States government stands behind it. Likewise, you could look at a sacrificial bull or a ram or a goat and say, that's not worth my sin, or that's not able to cover for my unholiness, let alone the unholiness of an entire nation. And you would have a point in and of itself the life of that animal is not worth your sin. It's not an equal exchange. But here's the thing. God's authority stands behind the value of the life of that animal. Right? Leviticus 17.11 says clearly, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, Yahweh, have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. What we are learning here is that the blood is valid for the atonement of one's soul because God has declared it to be so. He has given the blood to Israel to make atonement. And that's why in the end, after all the instructions of the law and the performance of the rituals, that's why God says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests to me. Is it the law that consecrates? Is it the obedience? Is it the blood itself? Not really. Ultimately, it's God who consecrates. It's God who makes the atonement. And so it is God who supplies the life Third word up on our shelf. We had truth, way, life. God provides the life to the sacrifice. Apart from God's declaration, the sacrifice would be ineffective. It would have no power, no life. But because, and only because God stands behind it, the sacrifice has that atoning power. So I've talked about lots of theological truths. I've talked about Moses and Aaron and the Israelites. Maybe some of you already know, but... Now, I'm going to ask the question, what does this have to do with us right here, right now? That answer brings us back to what I promised at the beginning, that this graphic imagery was preserved for the purpose of teaching us the truth about Jesus. And so we've arrived now at the last point, which is really the point of all of this, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How great is God's gospel? And there's really so much that could be said here, but I want to focus back on the imagery, the image of the fire that showed us the incompatibility of a holy God and unholiness. That fire, that fire is the righteous wrath of God towards sin. We see that that fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10.2. And as I've already mentioned, I don't know if you caught it, if you look back a couple of verses, Leviticus 9.24, you'll see that that same fire came out and consumed the animal offerings made to make atonement for the people. Also, in chapter 10, verse 5, we have this image of the burnt bodies of Nadab and Abihu being carried outside the camp. Again, if you look back a couple chapters to uh, Leviticus 6, verse 11, you'll see that that is what they were commanded to do with the ashes of the burnt offering. They were commanded to carry them outside the camp. So these images correspond there's a parallel, as you see, between Nadab and Abihu and the actual animal sacrifices. The images show that there's a substitution. Either the sacrificial animal is burnt and disposed outside the camp, or Nadab and Abihu are. In other words, when one draws near to God, 
Either an animal is consumed to atone for sins under the Old Testament, or the one drawing near is consumed. And this image really is at the core of the Gospel. Right? The Gospel is God's good news that Jesus died for sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So I just want to explain a little bit how the Gospel is seen in what's been said. Jesus, Jesus came to be the ultimate, the true sacrifice to endure the fire of God's wrath to make atonement for us. He came to make that Levitical image a reality. In other words, unlike Nadab and Abihu who were the wrong men at the wrong place at the wrong time, Jesus was the right man in the right place at the right time, coming in the right way, and he came for all mankind for all time. And in Jesus, God has manifested to us his grace. In the same way that we saw God's grace manifested to Israel through the sacrifices, we see God's grace manifested to all the world through Jesus Christ. Just as God in the Old Testament sought and pursued Israel, God has not remained aloof. He has taken the initiative and entered into time and space in Jesus the Son and pursued his people that he might dwell in them. And now we'll bring those words back off the shelf, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Just as God gave Israel the law, God has revealed to all the world the truth. And the truth is that Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. And just as he provided Israel with the very animals for the sacrifice, God has now provided the way in Jesus. Jesus is the way. He's the sacrifice that was needed. It's provided by God. And just as God was the guarantor of the animal sacrifices, like we said on the dollar bill, uh, God stood behind the the value of that sacrifice. So God is the life that stands behind Jesus' sacrifice. Just as the animal sacrifices were effective under that old covenant, because God stood behind them under the new covenant, Jesus' sacrifice is effective because Jesus is God himself incarnate, inhabiting that sacrifice and becoming a substitute for us. The writer to Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10 that ultimately it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The priests had to sacrifice over and over again, the writer tells us in Hebrews. They had to sacrifice both for themselves and for the people, but Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And this is the application that I'd like you to take with you today. And the understanding is that this is the way. That God is holy. Your sin is grave. The gulf is great. But God's grace is greater still. And the gospel, the good news that Jesus died once for sins, once for all, is the way that God has provided for us to come near Him so that He might dwell in us. This is the way. To go another way, is to go the way of Nadab and Abihu, to the path of destruction. Again, from the book of Hebrews, support what I'm saying. The writer says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we saw Nadab and Abihu died without mercy. How much greater or severer a punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot 
the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, that is Jesus' blood, by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So in Leviticus, it was either the sacrifice of Nadab and Abihu uh, who were consumed in the flames, <coughs> or it was the sacrifice. Let me say that again. It was either Nadab and Abihu who were consumed in the flames, or a sacrifice. Today, either you trust in Jesus, having suffered God's wrath as a sacrifice in your place, or you will suffer God's wrath. So today, for those of you who have believed and repented and confessed Jesus as Lord, my message is simply this. Marvel at these truths that God has laid up for us in his word and has held secure for over 3,500 years. And let's rejoice today in the truth of that message that our uncleanness has been atoned for, that God has indwelled us, and that we can come to him without fear, and we can come to him with great thanksgiving. And for those who may not have believed, who have not trusted in this way, who think they'll find their own way, my plea to you this, this morning is learn from Nadab and Abihu. Learn from this graphic image. God's brought you this story this morning for a reason. He's showing you that your way, your strange fire, your bold approach in your unholiness is the way to destruction. There's only one way, and that's God's way. Cry out to him and he will answer you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, are in awe of your truth, how it runs throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end. And Lord, we, we come before you in, in fear and trembling because we recognize that you are holy, that we are not. We come to you with great um, thanksgiving and joy because we know that you have provided that way. You have done what we could not do. We could never, ever fully obey your law and live up to your holiness. But you, through Christ, have done exactly that. Fulfilled all the law. Fulfilled all these images that were in the law. Jesus said these scriptures spoke of him. And it is just a blessing to see how that is true. And that this was your plan all along to send your son to die on a cross to take our sin so that you could dwell in us. What an amazing, amazing thing. And we just praise your name and thank you for these truths this morning. And I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who is not, has not repented, who has not uh, followed your way, who thinks that they have their own way, Lord, I just pray you would bring down conviction on them and that you're, you would convict them by your Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit would work in them to open their eyes to their, this truth and to their need for you and their need to repent and to trust only in you and only in your way. And I just pray all these things in the name of Jesus who died for our sins. Amen.